0: Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Thanks for being here today. I want to jo- uh, welcome everyone who's joining us online, and if you're a first-time guest with us this weekend, I want to give you an extra special welcome. We're glad that you're here. It's good to see all of our kids in the service with us uh, today, and I hope that when you go home, your family is still intact after this is over, after they sat through me for 35 minutes or more, maybe. Who knows? All right. If you've got a Bible, I want to hear your pages turning to the Gospel of John in the fourth chapter. The Gospel of John and the fourth chapter as we continue this everyday evangelism series. And while you're turning there, just real quickly, three things real quickly. Number one, we still need people to sign up to help us at our food packing event, which is next Saturday, October the 21st. We're going to be packing over 345,000 meals, many of which will be distributed with a mission partner of ours in Cuba Uh, This is a great need. This is a great opportunity. It's one of the ways we live out uh, our mission of changing the world for Christ. One life, one family, one opportunity at a time. This is a great opportunity. So if you haven't registered, you need to quit fooling around and you need to do that today. I don't know what else might be on your calendar for next October, but if there's something else on your calendar that involves changing the world in a positive way, then I guess I would understand you not signing up. But otherwise, we're going to have a problem. All right, number two. Uh, This Sexual Revolution Seminar is just a great opportunity. And I'll just simply say this because I don't have a lot of time. If you still have children at home, you have got to be equipped with a clear biblical understanding of God's design and God's intent for sex. You've got to. It's that critical for your children. So that's from nine o'clock to 12 o'clock on Saturday morning, October the 28th, and you have to register online. And then finally, about a year ago, Mount Pleasant, or a little over a year ago, Mount Pleasant partnered with a 501c3 ministry called Financial Planning Ministry, FPM for short. And we've been hosting these dinners and inviting people from our church to come to these dinners to hear how Financial Planning Ministry, FPM, can help you create an end-of-life estate plan at absolutely zero cost to you. I can't think of a more important activity that you can do. And let me tell you, friends, I've been a pastor for over 40 years and I have been with people who came to the end of their life without being prepared, financially speaking, organizationally speaking, and it's a nightmare for them. So take advantage of this. We're going to give you a free dinner and we're going to give you the opportunity to have an estate plan created the way you want it at absolutely no cost to you. So if you got one of those invitations, then RSVP, do that and don't miss that opportunity. And finally, finally, I'm gonna preach here in a minute, I promise. I know you're like me and our hearts are heavy for the nation of Israel and the events that have unfolded over the past several days. Psalm 122 and verse six says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem may those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. We have a family that lives in Jerusalem that we support as missionaries. Charlie and Valerie Dilcher. Valerie is the daughter of uh, Alan Joyce Long, longtime members here at Mount Pleasant. They have Daughters that are there with them and um, we're going to we're going to pause right here in our service We're going to pray for them. Okay, we're going to pray for the nation of israel And we're going to ask in particular god's protection and safety over the dilcher family charlie and valerie And then their daughters. So let's just do that together real quickly Father in heaven. We are so grateful for you and that you are a god of love And we know that you are a god um, who loves the nation of israel you chose them, God. You, you, you say in the scriptures that uh, they, are, they are deserving of blessing and that you bless those who bless them. Father, you, you, you share your heart for them in the pages of the scriptures. And right now, there are some horrific things happening in the nation of Israel. Been so much violence and so much mayhem, unthinkable, horrific. And so we pray for peace in Israel. We pray for your perfect will to be done. We pray, Father, for your protection over the Dilcher family. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would keep them safe. And we pray, Father, that you would just do what you do as the sovereign God of the universe. And that you would help us to trust you. We love you. We pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone agreed and said... Amen. You know, there are three things that really define Mount Pleasant Christian Church on the most practical level. That is our vision, our mission, and our core four values. Our vision is to be a church that is locally focused and globally engaged with an undeniable impact for Christ. Our mission is to change the world for Christ, one life, one family, one opportunity at a time. And we live those things out through what we call our four core strategies, things that we do that we focus the majority of our attention on. Compelling worship, what we do when we gather on the weekends. Relational discipleship, we believe people grow best spiritually speaking in community. And so we encourage small group meetings and Bible studies and opportunities like that. Uh, Spiritual influence is the third one. And spiritual influence is the term we use for personal evangelism, which is what we're talking about in this message series. And then finally, serving others across the street and around the world, just like coming together to pack all these meals, uh, many of which will be sent to Cuba. A few years ago, uh, we introduced a message series called the One Life Series. And that's when we started talking about personal evangelism as spiritual influence. Uh, And what we did is we just ask everybody in our church uh, to identify somebody in their life. We call it their one life, your one life. Identify one person in your life who is not living in a right relationship with God and then be willing to do three things with that person. Number one, develop a friendship. Number two, discover their story. And number three, discern next steps about how God might use you to share spiritual influence with them. When we did that, we also had a training Program we had about a thousand people go through the training program for the One Life Ministry, and uh, we did all of this as a part of a message series that was simply called One Life. I thought it was really powerful. We we had a guest speaker one weekend, Lee Strobel, Lee Strobel, who's uh, one of the leading apologists in the world and the author of so many books about uh, the the reality of God and Christ and the message of the Bible, and on and on and on. Uh, and he he came and preached a powerful message about about what what would be like if Jesus lived in our neighborhood. You remember this? He talked about if Jesus lived in my neighborhood, this is how he would share spiritual influence with the people that were around him. One week, I didn't even preach. You remember this? I invited four atheists to join me on the platform. And for about 45 minutes, I just interviewed those people. I said, you know, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Bible? How, how did you choose to be an atheist? And share with us how people like us could have some level of influence with people like you. And it was tremendous. I mean, we look back in our records and we saw that we had a great big crowd the weekend Lee Strobel was here because he's a big name and a big deal. But we look back and we saw that on the weekend when I interviewed the the four atheists, we had like three times as many people watch that online as we had watching Lee Strobel. That's how important and impactful that was. And then I preached one weekend about what it looks like to develop friendships with nonbelievers, one weekend about what it looks like to discover their story, and one weekend about what it looks like to discern next steps. But I'm going to be really honest with you today and tell you that we really haven't got a lot of traction out of that one life series and that new approach to personal evangelism called spiritual influence, and friends, I am burdened by that. I am. I spent about the first 20 years of my life as a pastor feeling like I had the sole responsibility for evangelism or spiritual influence in the churches I served, and so what I did for many, many years, especially when my family was very young, is I I spent evenings— out of my home every week, knocking on people's doors, hoping that I would be invited into their house so that I could share the gospel with them. Sometimes I knocked on the doors of people I had appointments with, and sometimes I just knocked on people's doors, and I didn't have any idea who was on the other side. And I did that uh, one or two nights a week for many, many, many years. Sometimes I would take men from the church with me in hopes that they would view that as on-the-job training, which they didn't usually But that's what I did. And then when it became difficult to start finding people at home because culture was changing and life got more busy, when it became difficult to find people at home or when it became difficult for people to be willing to invite you into their home, then we had to uh, uh, change what we were doing. And so for many, many years, and this was primarily true when I served my church in Oklahoma, what I would do is when people would be like, what we would call prospects, I know that sounds like a bad term, but just, you know, potential folks to, to come to our church or to share the gospel with or to be church members, then I would invite them to come to the church one evening each month. To spend an evening with myself and my wife, Sandy. It actually, looking back on that, I will tell you that it's one of my favorite times of ministry because very few things in the last 43 years of life have we been able to do together in ministry. But she would, we would, we would make one room in the church really comfortable and she would bring all kinds of desserts and, and delicious foods and that's what she's really good at. She loves to serve that way. And people would come and we would just spend an evening together and I would share the gospel with them. I would tell them what they needed to know and do in order to make sure their life was right with God. And then I would just talk to them about what, it was like to be a member of a local church, the opportunities that were involved and the responsibilities that were involved. And it was a tremendous time. Now, when I moved from Oklahoma here you to here, you were already doing something like that. You called it a membership inquiry class. I think an evening with Pastor Chris and Sandy sounds a little bit more inviting, but you were calling it a membership inquiry class. And it was great. It was great. Don't misunderstand me. And so I just plugged into that and I would do that. But then as culture keeps changing, it got difficult to have to get people who would come and spend an evening with you during the week. And so we moved it to Sunday morning. And so what would happen, or Sunday lunch, rather. So what would happen is we'd have the weekend services. When I was finished preaching, I would go across the street to the Community Life Center where people had gathered for lunch. We were hosting them for lunch. And after they finished eating, I would share the gospel with them and I would talk to them about what it looked like and what it meant to be a member of a local church like Mount Pleasant. I would answer whatever questions they had. And then when that got difficult, we moved it to Sunday morning and now we do it on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock and I don't get to be involved at all. I've just been slowly phased out of the thing from beginning to the end. (laughs) And that's what we do. That's what we do. In addition to that, over the years, uh, our services and our programs as a, as a large church uh, have attracted a lot of people. We would always follow up on those people. But listen, life is different today in 2023. It's different today because we live in a post-Christian culture today. And what that means is we live in a culture where traditional Christian values and beliefs are not as widely embraced and practiced and taught as they were in the past and if you don't realize that then where have you been what have you been doing there are, there are not nearly as many people today who have any level of familiarity with the Christian faith as there were in years past and so a lot of people never just decide on their own hey why don't we go to church this weekend why don't we just check out the uh, local church on the corner or whatever it might be. I, I've been a pastor a long time, and there was a long period of time in ministry where I would, I was, I would meet young couples who would come to church, and then I would, I would follow up with them on some level. I would always ask, well, what is it that brought you to our church this weekend? And so many times they would say, well, you know what? We just had our first baby. We just had our first child. And my husband and I, or my wife and I, we, we have great memories of growing up in church our entire lives. We got married, we, we didn't have a church home together, we just got out of the habit of going, but now we've had this our first child, and we wanna make sure our children are raised in church just the same way we were. But you know what? We live in a world today where there are all these young couples who were never raised in church. Why? Because we live in a post-Christian culture today. It's not the same. The world has changed. The world around you has changed whether you recognize that or not. I remember when I was on the board of directors of the Solomon Foundation, we used to hold pastors conferences around the country. And every one of the, the, the board members who was a pastor usually was assigned something that they would share about with the pastors. We used to have a guy named Don Wilson who was with us, who at the time was the senior pastor of Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona, which is the single largest independent Christian church like Mount Pleasant in the entire country. And he would always talk to the pastors about leadership. And one of the things, I have this vivid memory of hearing him say this over and over again, one of the things he would say to all the pastors who were gathered at the conference is this, you need to understand that we are no longer the home team. We are no longer the home team. What does that mean? Well, it's just another way to describe the reality of living in a post-Christian culture. It means we don't have the home field advantage. We're not in the majority anywhere be, anymore because Satan, who the Bible calls the God of this age, has, this is what Paul writes about Satan in 2 Corinthians chapter four and verse four, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ who is the image of God. We live in a world that has changed, friends. And it's changed, when it's, come, when it come, it's changed when it comes to the way people view Christianity or their familiarity or knowledge of Christianity. And so what we have to do as a church is we have to be committed to some level of personal evangelism or what we call spiritual influence. But to do that, we all have to understand that this is a responsibility for all of us. All of us this is what God has called all of us to do. And so that's why we're involved in this message series called Everyday Evangelism. We, we, we started off in week one talking about the heart of God for lost people by looking at three stories Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, three parables. And then last week we came together and we talked about Jesus calling Matthew to be his disciple. And we focused on the fact that <clears throat> when Jesus was having dinner in Matthew's home with other tax collectors and sinners, the religious leaders were incensed They couldn't understand it. Why? Why does your? They said to the disciples, "Why does your teacher spend his time with such scum of the earth?" Basically, and Jesus said, "You need to understand what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." And we talked about how mercy, the mercy of God, viewing people with mercy in their situation, in the reality of their life, is a key part of everyday evangelism. Well, as we come to week three, I just want to share with you as practical a message as possible about what everyday evangelism, everyday spiritual influence needs to look like in your life and mine. And that brings us to John chapter four. So if you've got your Bibles open and you're able, I wanna invite you to stand with me for the reading of the scripture. John chapter four tells the story of Jesus and a Samaritan woman. And it's a long passage. It's 42 verses. We're not going to read all 42 verses, but brace yourself, we are going to read 26. So <laughs> suck it up. Here we go. <clears throat> the Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and, and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Suhar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Mm -hmm. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. All right, there it is. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing. Of his word. Just like the passage we've already looked at, this is another familiar story in the life of Jesus. I'm gonna tell you something. I want you to listen to me close. I've preached on this passage before, and I've preached on this passage with a lot of explanation related to the text, but there won't be a lot of explanation today because my focus is on talking to you about this story in as practical a way as possible to show you how personal evangelism, everyday evangelism, spiritual influence can work at least on some level in all of our lives. And so I got four things I want to share with you, and I promise you I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. Number one, write this down somewhere. Personal evangelism, spiritual influence, should be a part of our everyday lives, every one of us. When John 4 begins, Jesus has made the decision to return or to leave Judea, rather, to return to Galilee. And in order to do that, he chooses, that's the key word here, he chooses to travel through Samaria. So when he came to a city in Samaria called Sahar, near a plot of ground where Jacob's well was located, he sat down because he was tired. Now, you notice that John said it was about the sixth hour when this happened, which means in Jesus' day, it was around noon, around 12 o'clock noon. And he sat down because he was tired. But... What happened, as we just saw, is that while he was sitting there near a place called Jacob's Well, which goes back to the Old Testament, if you're an Old Testament uh, student, you know about that, he encounters a Samaritan woman who came to draw water. The disciples, the text says, had gone into town to buy food. Well, the fact that the woman comes to draw water at the sixth hour or at noon says a lot about her because women in Jesus' day would either draw water very early in the morning or later in the day to avoid the heat. And For women in Jesus's day, it was like a social gathering. It was something they looked forward to and something they really invested themselves in at least for a certain period of time. But this woman came alone and she came at noon, which tells us something about her. It tells us that she was there drawing water at noon because she was avoiding the other woman. Now we know Jesus is God in human flesh and he knows all things about all people. So he knew everything there was to know about this woman's life. But don't miss the fact that from a cultural standpoint, from a social standpoint, this woman drawing water all alone at noon reveals something about her that anyone could have noticed. You didn't have to be Jesus, God in human flesh to notice it. Anyone could have noticed this. There was a reason why she was there all alone at that hour of the day. And Jesus picks up on that. And as a result, as a part of his everyday life, He engages her in a life-changing spiritual conversation. So here's what I want you to see. All that to say this. We often think of evangelism or spiritual influence as something that happens in some kind of a planned, pre-planned or programmed way. But Jesus shows us that it needs to be a part of our everyday lives. It needs to be a way of life for all of us who are followers of Christ, every one of us. So let me just ask you this question. What would happen if we lived, I'm talking about you, I'm not talking about some unnamed, unseen group of Christians somewhere else. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about me. What would happen if we lived our lives with the daily awareness that every single person we encounter throughout the day could be someone who is just waiting to hear the good news about Jesus? What would happen We we stopped reading our our story at verse 26. If we were to read on in John chapter four, we'd see a little bit later when the disciples came back, they have a conversation with Jesus and they urge him to eat something. Uh, They're surprised to find him talking to a Samaritan woman, but they urge him to eat something. And this is how Jesus replies in John chapter four and verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. And then in John 35, he goes on and says this, pay attention. He says, do do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. In other words, they are ripe for harvest right now. And if we were to really highlight something that Jesus says there, it would be the fact that he says, I tell you, open your eyes. And that's what so many of us need to do in our lives every single day, open our eyes and see that the fields all around us are ripe for harvest. Sometimes spiritual influence, everyday evangelism just takes paying attention to the people who are around us. I probably told you this story over the years. I lose track of everything that I've told you or not told you. But when I, when I first started at my church in Oklahoma, there was a convenience store right across the street called Get and Go. And every every weekday morning, I would go into that convenience store and buy a newspaper. I haven't bought, I can't even tell you the last time I bought a newspaper. Does anybody here, just out of curiosity, still buy a newspaper every day? Don't be ashamed. I, you're my hero if you do. Okay, thank you. I mean, because we just we don't need it anymore, right? But back back then, you know, that was the way you got the news. That's the way I found out about what's going on in the world. Uh, and so I bought a newspaper every day. And uh, sometimes maybe I'm out and doing some chocolate covered donuts, but a newspaper for sure. <laughs> every single day, every day. Well, the same guy worked behind the counter every day when I went in there and he had a name tag on. His name was Robert and uh, over the course of time, you know, I, going in there every morning, I just, Robert and I just started talking. I didn't go in there thinking, you know, I hope that I meet somebody in here that I can forge a relationship with that might end up with some kind of spiritual influence. We just started talking. How you doing today? You've been working hard? What's going on in your life? You know, blah, blah. And I learned that he had a wife named Pam. They didn't have any children at the time. Uh, I learned where he was from and on and on. He learned that I was the pastor across the street at Northside and he would ask me questions about the church. And we just had this conversation. That's how it started at Innocent. As possible, I would be lying to you today if I told you I'm gonna strategically plan out my day to buy a newspaper at this certain convenience store at the same time every single day so that I can evangelize the pagan who's behind the counter. (laughs) That's not the way it was. I just went in there every day and started talking to him, and he started talking to me. But over the course of time, I baptized both him and his wife, and when their two boys were born, I held them in my arms and I dedicated them in the church service. Sometimes spiritual influence is as simple as just paying attention to the people that are around you. And let's be honest, life, as busy as it has become for so many people, sometimes gets in the way of that. And maybe the best thing that most of us could do is just take a step back from ourselves and say, listen, I'm gonna proceed in a different way and I'm gonna start to notice the people in my life, because this is an everyday activity. This is a part, this should be a part of our lifestyle as followers of Christ. Write down the second thing. The second truth I see in this familiar story is that the gospel, which is a word that just simply means the good news about Jesus, the good news that Jesus came into the world to give us the opportunity for a new and a better life in relationship with God. The gospel, the good news about Jesus is for everyone, no matter their circumstance. You go back to John chapter 4, and you look at verses 7 through 10. Jesus is sitting there by Jacob's well because it's, it's noon, it's hot, and he's tired. And it says, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have answered him, and he would have given you living water. Now, listen to me. It might seem simple, but I want you to pay attention. Notice the scripture goes out of its way to make it known that Jesus is having a conversation with a Samaritan woman. John, in recording this story, even goes so far as to plainly tell us that Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He added commentary at the end of verse nine where he literally says that. Why didn't Jews and Samaritans have any contact with each other? Well, the short explanation is Samaritans were considered to be compromisers by the Jews because they were descendants of Jews who had intermarried with Gentiles. Now there's way more to that story than we have time to talk about and it takes you all the way back to the Old Testament to see its origins, but that's a simple and accurate explanation. So for a Jewish man, To talk to a Samaritan woman was absolutely unheard of because Samaritans were considered absolutely unworthy of the interest or the attention of any Jews. In fact, most of the Jews hated the Samaritans so much they wouldn't have done what Jesus did. They would not have traveled through Samaria to get to where they were going. But here was Jesus, the son of God, God in human flesh sitting at Jacob's well Engaging a Samaritan woman in conversation—unheard of, because of who he was and who she was, because of how he, as a Jew, was supposed to view her. Here's a difficult but important question: Have you ever—and we be, let's all be honest—have you ever made a judgment about someone based on their appearance, their associations? or their lifestyle. I'm talking about a judgment that would keep you from ever engaging that person in any personal or meaningful way. What's your honest answer? My honest answer would be, I have, and I'm not proud of it. I don't know if you're in one of our um, Mount Pleasant small groups, our home groups, but um, Um, I've been in the same group I've led the same home group for for many many years and and it's a wonderful group of people Um, Sandy and I love them all so much and we uh are so connected. We meet every Monday night in, in our home. And uh, we're one of the home groups that, that for our study time, we take a lesson that comes from the weekend sermon uh, that helps us to talk about it on a little bit of a deeper level, that's what we do. And so last week, because the message was about uh, Jesus calling Matthew as a disciple, and Jesus had that verse where he said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. One of the questions on our take-home lesson was, on a scale of one to 10, how merciful are you? How would you answer that question? In relation to other people, people you know, people you don't know. On a scale of one to 10, how merciful are you? Well, I was sitting in my office on Monday and I was going through the questions because I lead the discussion. And I got that question. I'm like, okay, well, I think I'm pretty good on this. I think I'm pretty merciful. And then at the end, I just gave myself a seven, which is not a bad score. But let's be honest, when it comes to a believer, that's not a great score either. And here's why I gave myself a seven, because I came to the conclusion that I am very merciful for people who are victims. I am not very merciful for people who cause their own problems, who create their own circumstances, who repeat bad choices over and over and over again. But do you think that from Jesus's perspective, that's how we should qualify our answer? He just said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And one of the things we learn from Jesus's encounter with the Samaritan woman is that what we see on the outside doesn't determine what's in someone's heart. Jesus didn't come into the world to save kind people. He didn't come into the world to save decent people. He didn't come into the world to save people, uh, 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 appropriate people. He came to save everyone, and if you look at Jesus' life in the Gospels, he shared his life with Jews, he shared his life with Gentiles, and he shared his life with Samaritans. We see a story of that right here in John chapter 4. When I was writing this message, I read this story from another pastor. Let me just share it with you. It's not very long. He said, I was a fireman before God called me to become a pastor, but while I was a fireman, I was a Christian, and God gave me many opportunities to share my faith both at the fire station and in the back of an ambulance. There was a man who trained me while I was going through paramedic school. He was a good guy, but he was a pretty immoral man in my eyes. He used vulgar language and he said things about his wife constantly that made me feel very uncomfortable. So I came to the conclusion that this guy would never want anything to do with Christ. We both ended up leaving the fire department and we didn't see each other for a couple of years. I happened to run into him sometime later and you'll never guess what he told me. He told me he got saved. Somebody say amen. Amen. It's a good thing. But this is what he wrote. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, what a lesson to be learned. What a fool I was to think that the gospel cannot penetrate any heart. What a thing to think that there is someone that God cannot save. And he wrote, everyone is worthy of the gospel. And we must see everyone as a potential believer. But is that what we do, folks? Honestly? How merciful are you on a scale of one to 10? Write this third thing down. Personal evangelism, spiritual influence gets personal. It has to. We go back to John chapter four, and this time verses 15 through 18, because after Jesus talks to the woman about the living water that he could offer in verses 13 through 14, she replies like this. This is beginning in verse 15. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, again, let me just remind you that my emphasis with this message is more practical than um, it is theological. I mean, I want more practical application than I'm gonna give explanation. But having said that, I will tell you that In studying this passage, you'll see that most commentators will say that this, that, that this Samaritan woman needed to understand two critical issues before she could ever receive any kind of living water from Jesus. The first one was the reality of her sin, and the second one is exactly who Jesus was. She needed to understand the reality of her sin before her life could be changed, and she needed to understand, number two, the reality of who Jesus was. For the time being, let's just focus on that first one. She needed to understand the reality of her sin Because that need is so great, Jesus gets really personal. Remember Jesus who knows all things, Jesus who knew everything about this woman because Jesus is no ordinary man, he was God in human flesh, said, go call your husband. And that's the transition he uses to get her to begin to understand why she had this need for living water. And he doesn't beat around the bush, he gets right to the point by drawing out and exposing the reality of her sin, the thing in her life that created such a deep need for her. And I think it's safe to say that this woman, even though she, she knew that the life she was living was not very orthodox, she probably didn't understand how significant that really was until this moment in this conversation with Jesus. There is something that every single person in the world has in common with this Samaritan woman, and that is the desperate need we all have to experience the living water that only Jesus offers. So when we share the gospel with someone, when we talk to somebody about their life being changed by Jesus, we need to do what Jesus did. We need to be willing to say, in essence, what Jesus said, even though he didn't use these exact words. Basically, what Jesus did is he said, what are you gonna do about your sin? We can't ignore the reality of your sin. In John Enser's book called The Great Work of the Gospel, he tells a story about when he was a teenager, he was in a department store and he stole a hat. He'd never done anything like that before. But for some reason he stole a hat, but the store manager saw him and stopped him on the way out. And the store manager looked at him and he could tell that he wasn't some kind of a hardened criminal. And so what he did was he took down the boy's uh, personal information and he said, I want you to go home and tell your mom and dad exactly what happened. And if I don't hear from your mom and dad uh, by tomorrow, then I'm gonna contact the police and we're gonna settle it that way and so he writes in the book that he went home and he decided to suck it up and take his lumps and he told his mom and dad what had happened and then he writes in this book to this day I remember what my 18 year old sister said when she heard me confessing this is what she said how totally embarrassing I've got a brother who's a thief and he writes she called me a thief but then he wrote this but becoming ashamed of what we are as a result of what we do is a good thing and a necessary part about, of getting real about grief. And he writes, If you commit adultery, you're an adulterer. And if you lie, you're a liar. And he said, I stole. So I was a thief. I became a thief. And it led me to my room weeping and ashamed of myself. But that was good, painful. But good. Now, I want everybody to look at me for a second here. Don't be distracted. I know, friends, I know firsthand from a lot of experience how difficult it can be sometimes to talk to people about the reality of sin. I know that. But the Bible is clear that we need to talk about sin. That's where the whole gospel message starts. Because until we understand the reality of our sin and the consequences of it in that it separates us from God and there's nothing we can ever do about it on our own, no one will ever be open to the life-saving message of the gospel. And so we need to be able to do something like this. We need to be able to say, hey, listen, just imagine with me for a moment. You you know, you've heard this. Just imagine with me for a moment that my hand represents my life. This is me. And my Bible is not a Bible, but it's actually a record book of every single sin I've ever committed in my life. And when you take that record book of sin and you place it on top of my life, you don't even see me anymore. All you see is my sin. I'm completely defined by, covered up by, surrounded by, encompassed by the reality of my sin. That's all you see. And I'm helpless and hopeless in that situation because imagine that my right hand represents God and he's up in heaven and he looks down at me and he loves me. The Bible says he loves me just like he loves you with an everlasting love. That's the way God views all of us. And he wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to have a relationship with you, but he can't as long as that sin is there because a holy God cannot live in fellowship with sinful man. The Bible says this about God. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. He can't damage his own character by living in relationship with sinful people. People. But God loves us so much that he wasn't content just to look at it like that. And so what he did was he came down to the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, he paid the penalty for your sin. He satisfied with his life God's need for justice with regard to sin. And so when he was on the cross, God took all my sin, all your sin, and he transferred it to Jesus, and he punished him on the cross in my place and your place for our sin. There is no gospel apart from talking about sin. There's just not. And we saw how Jesus dealt with that with the Samaritan woman, go call your husband. He knew what she was, he knew she was either gonna lie or she was gonna tell him exactly what he already knew. And you have to deal with sin. You can't share the good news with someone unless you talk about the reality of sin, which means sometimes you have to get personal. Personal evangelism sometimes has to be personal. And finally, number four, I'm in the red, but not as deep in the red as I was last night. The only qualification for sharing the good news, the gospel, the only qualification you or I or anyone needs is your own life-changing encounter with Jesus, that's it. We go back to John chapter four, verses 25 and 26, because after the woman acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet, I mean, how else would he know all this about her if he weren't a prophet? Uh, And after she becomes convicted by her sin, she tries to engage him in a conversation that is based on, well, where where should I go to worship God? But Jesus cuts through the question, this is my paraphrase, by basically saying, listen, the place of where we worship God isn't the issue. The issue is whether or not you're gonna be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. And then in verse 25 through 26, the woman says, listen to this, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming when he comes he will explain everything to us then jesus declared i who speak to you am he remember what i said the commentator said before this woman could really experience living water she needed to understand the reality of her sin and she needed to understand exactly who jesus was and he says listen i'm that guy i'm the messiah i'm your only hope i'm him So after Jesus reveals to this woman that he's no ordinary man, he does that basically by telling her everything, that she, everything about her life. In fact, later on, we didn't read this, later on when she goes back to her village, she says in John four twenty nine, come and see a man who told me everything I did, ever did. And he revealed to her, after he revealed to her that he was not just an ordinary man and she tried to engage him in basically religious talk that centered around the different beliefs between the Samaritans and the Jews, he never lost his focus and he brought the conversation back to what was most important and that was him and what he had to offer this woman because this is the thing that we need to understand. Everything that woman needed Everything she got when she met Jesus. And while I don't know what the circumstance of your life is today, not all of you, I know so many of you, but I don't know the circumstance of your life for all of you. I don't know the circumstance for all of you who are watching online today. I know that the same thing is true for you that was true for this Samaritan woman. Everything you need in your life, you get when you meet Jesus. Jesus everything, including the ability to share your faith with other people. Because if we were to read the rest of the chapter, we would see that what this woman did next was she went back to her village as a personal evangelist, sharing spiritual influence. Listen to verses 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. You know, she didn't have to give any theological explanations. She didn't have to answer the question of where did God come from? Or all those questions that you and I are so afraid of that keeps us from ever opening our mouths when it comes to matters of faith. She just shared her personal experience and God did the rest. We underestimate the power of the Holy Spirit. We think that only people like me have the ability to share the gospel with others. Listen, that is so far from the truth. This is something that all of us can do. All we really need is a personal life-changing encounter with Jesus, the Savior of the world. And if you have that, then you are someone who can share spiritual influence with someone else. I'm gonna close like this. I'm sorry, I went over time today. The team can get ready to come. We're gonna baptize a man in our 1045 service who is gonna be in that baptistry because a woman in our church paid attention to a woman who came into the store she worked over and over and over again. And eventually just engaged her in casual conversation, which got deeper and deeper, which led to an invitation to church, which led to her going and picking up her her and her husband and bringing them to church, which led to him making the decision to surrender his life in complete faith and trust to Jesus. Now, I know this woman, she is not a particularly aggressive woman in any way shape or form she is just a woman who in the course of her everyday life listen to me paid attention she just paid attention to the people who were around her